I'm Rudy Rucker, and I'm going to talk to you about transrealism today. And uh, the reason I have a microphone, I'm trying to tape this, and then I can make it into a podcast so uh, people can hear it online. This sounds a little weird in here because we've got a game show happening next door. It's sort of a thin wall, but uh, hopefully you can hear me well enough. So what I'm going to talk about today is transrealism, and that's a style of writing that I got interested in, in the uh, really from the from the very start. Uh, my second novel, in particular, White Light, was sort of a transrealist novel, and although I hadn't really formulated the concept yet of what it is, and then the third novel, uh, Software, was one of the first cyberpunk novels. Now, I found an old document that I wrote in uh, 1983, it appeared in the Bulletin of the Science Fiction Writers of America, and uh, it's something I actually have online, but I thought I might, it might be interesting to just read that to start with. That'll take about 10, 15 minutes, and then I'll talk about where the practice of transrealism took me. So this is called A Transrealist Manifesto. In this piece, I would like to advocate a style of SF writing that I call transrealism. Transrealism is not so much a type of SF as it is a type of avant-garde literature. I feel that transrealism is the only valid approach to literature at this point in history. Now, I wrote this, I was a young man, so. <laughs> An age of manifestos, yeah. The transrealist writes about immediate, immediate perceptions in a fantastic way. Any literature which is not about actual reality is weak and enervated, but the genre of straight realism is all burnt out. Who needs more straight novels? The tools of fantasy and SF offer a means to thicken and intensify realistic fiction. By using fantastic devices, it is possible to manipulate subtext. The familiar tools of SF time travel, anti-gravity, alternate worlds, telepathy, etc., are in fact symbolic of archetypal modes of perception. Time travel is memory. Flight is enlightenment. Alternate worlds symbolize the great variety of individual worldviews, and telepathy stands for the ability to communicate fully. This is the trans aspect. The realism aspect has to do with the fact that a valid work of art should deal with the world the way it actually is. Transrealism tries to treat not only immediate reality, but also the higher reality in which life is embedded. The characters should be based on actual people. What makes standard genre fiction so insipid is that the characters are so obviously puppets of the author's will. Actions become predictable, and in dialogue, it is difficult to tell which character is supposed to be talking. In real life, the people you meet almost never say what you want or expect them to. From long and bruising contact, you carry simulations of your acquaintances around in your head. These simulations are imposed on you from without. They do not react to imagined situations as you might desire. By letting these simulations run your characters, you can avoid turning out mechanical wish fulfillments. It is essential that the characters be in some sense out of control, as are real people. For what can anyone learn by reading about made-up people? In a transrealist novel, the author usually appears as an actual character, or his or her personality is divided among several characters. On the face of it, this sounds egotistical, but I would argue that to use oneself as a character is not really egotistical, it is simple necessity. If indeed you're writing about immediate perceptions, then what point of view other than your own is possible? It is far more egotistical to use an idealized version of yourself, a fantasy self, and to have this para-self wreak its will on a, plaque of, on a pack of pliant slaves. The transrealist protagonist is not presented as some superperson. A transrealist protagonist is just a neurotic and ineffectual as we each know ourselves to be. The transrealist artist cannot predict the finished form of his or her work. The transrealist novel grows organically like life itself. 
The author can only choose characters and setting, introduce this or that particularly, particular fantastic element, and aim for certain key scenes. Ideally, a transrealist novel is written in obscurity and without an outline. <laughs> if the author knows precisely how his or her book will develop, then the reader will divine this. A predictable book is of no interest. Nevertheless, the book must be coherent. Granted, life does not often make sense, but people will not read a book which has no plot. And a book with no readers is not a fully effective work of art. <laughs> a successful novel of any sort should drag the reader through it. How is it possible to write such a book without an outline? The analogy is to the drawing of a maze. In drawing a maze, one has a start, characters and setting, and certain goals, key scenes. A good maze forces the tracer past all the goals in a coherent way. When you draw a maze, you start out with a certain path, but leave a lot of gaps where other paths can hook back in. In writing a coherent transrealist novel, you include a number of unexplained happenings throughout the text, things that you don't know the reason for. Later, you bend strands of the ramifying narrative back to hook into these nodes. If no node is available for a given strand loop, you go back and write a node in. This is similar to erasing a piece of wall in the maze. Although reading is linear, writing is not. Transrealism is a revolutionary art form. A major tool in mass thought control is the myth of consensus reality. Hand in hand with this myth goes the notion of a normal person. There are no normal people. Just look at your relatives, the people that you are in a position to know best. They're all weird at some level below the surface. Yet conventional fiction very commonly shows us normal people in a normal world. As long as you labor under the feeling that you are the only weirdo, then you feel weak and apologetic. You're eager to go along with the establishment and frightened to make waves, lest you be found out. Actual people are weird and unpredictable. This is why it's so important to use them as characters instead of the impossibly good and bad paper dolls of mass culture. The idea of breaking down consensus reality is even more important. This is where the tools of SF are particularly useful. Each mind is a reality unto itself. As long as people can be tricked into believing the reality of the 630 news, they can be herded about like sheep. The president threatens us with nuclear war, and driven frantic, frantic by the fear of death, we rush out to buy consumer goods. When in fact, what really happens is that you turn off the TV, eat something, and go for a walk with infinitely many thoughts and perceptions mingling with infinitely many inputs. There will always be a place for the escape literature of genre SF, but there's no reason to let this severely limited and reactionary mode condition all our writing. Transrealism is the path to a truly artistic SF. So that's the manifesto I wrote. Uh, in 1983, I guess I was about, let's see, I was born in 1946, so I guess I would have been about 35, 37. Now, uh, I still write transrealist novels, and uh, I have started outlining my books, though. It does make it less painful. When you get to the middle of a book, I heard someone recently say you get to the point where it's like you're on a boat trip and you can't see the land where you left from and you can't see the land you're going to and it's just empty horizon. And it's nice to have some little toy map that you made for yourself, some little scrap of an outline that makes it a little bit easier to take. Um, now, with, with transrealism, I've usually taken, I'll take things that, that I'm concerned about, uh, like, Oh, a recent, one of my better known transrealist novels is The Hacker and the Ants. And that was about a period when I was working at a software company in Silicon Valley. And then I got, I got laid off there and then I, I had some time on my hands. I was still teaching, I was always teaching computer science at San Jose State. But for a while I was on leave from teaching and at this job. So it was nice to uh, take these, uh, the things, the people I knew there, and sort of work it into 
a transreal novel. Now, in doing that, I don't exactly copy the people that I know, although some of my friends, they sort of get tired of appearing in my novels. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was one guy, actually, it was funny, my, the man who was my boss, when I, I was working at the software company, it was Autodesk, and he was sort of a, maybe the chief evil villain in the, in the Hacker and the Ants. So he was a, a friend of mine, too. And he liked the book, but then when, it, when I was done, I sent it to him, and he gave me some useful comments. But then he wrote an extra chapter for the book in which it turned out that the, the evil character that had been him had been right all along, and it actually didn't die when it appeared that he had been eaten by some, uh, a flock of robotic ants. And he, in fact, and he actually posted that on his website. It was sort of funny. <laughs> but uh, so it's a, a happy ending for him. John Walker is the guy. Uh, another thing in transrealism is the, uh, the issue of uh, what parts of your life do you use. Uh, over the years, I pretty much have delved back and, and used pretty much every period of my life. The, the, the period of high school and college went into my novel, um, Master of, well, no, uh, The Secret of Life, which is about, uh, it's sort of like, what the Europeans called a Bildungsroman, about you know, a young man's education and about uh, him finding out about stuff. And in there, the trans move that I did there was one of the things that this young man learns is that he's not a human being. He's a space alien uh, who is a soul that was brought down by a saucer and placed inside the body of a pig. And then this soul uh, reorganized the flesh of the pig to look like a human being and his so-called parents were hypnotized by a saucer beam into thinking that he was their child. And uh, so he walks in there, and it's the first time they've seen him, and there's a birthday cake on the table, and they're singing happy birthday to him. And that's a fairly good description for how a lot of us felt growing up, that I couldn't possibly be the child of these old people that I'm living with. And I'm clearly a UFO alien that they're just hosting, and. Uh, taking care of. So that, uh, I thought that worked pretty well, and I had fun with that. Then, um, White Light was uh, set in the period when I was working at a college in upstate New York. A, uh, it was a branch of the State University College of Arts and Sciences, which had the unfortunate acronym of SUCKASS. <laughs> so I was at SUCKASS Geneseo. And uh, that was a, a time when, oh, as always, they were cutting the education budget. And then uh, I, was, I taught there. It's hard to remember now. Maybe I taught there for five years. And then uh, I had to leave. They wouldn't give me tenure. They didn't have enough money. And, uh, but at that time, then, uh, I had a grant to go to Germany. It was the best, best deal I ever had, the German. Government, it was like they're sort of trying to buy friends throughout the world. <laughs> Germany always needs friends. And uh, it was uh, something they'd pay you to come and do research at a, a German university. And while I was there, I wrote White Light. And that was, uh, I, it was set back in Geneseo where we'd been living. And it was about a guy who uh, leaves his body and travels to basically the afterworld and finds this mountain there that's higher than infinitely high. And he climbs up it and uh, discovers all these higher infinities and things. And that, again, was sort of a good transreal correlative for, in a way, what it's like to do mathematics. Because I did my, my technical work in mathematics was about the theory of infinite sets. So it was sort of like I would leave my body and go into this abstract world. And also the thing about well, white light, it's also a phrase, you know, it's, it's sometimes used to mean a state that you, a visionary state that people get into if they take a large dose of LSD. And that's, I was never really, sometimes my books give the impression that I took drugs a lot, and that's really quite exaggerated. I only took things, maybe I took LSD once or twice, but it made a big impression on me. 
And so I liked working that into the novel of somebody who climbs this. It was a way to write about this experience of somebody who climbs up past all the levels of infinity and finds this blinding white light there and merges into it and then returns to Earth. And, uh, well, he, he gets a certain amount of power, but not all that much power. He still loses his job, but then he gets, gets, uh, gets a grant at the end and goes to Germany. And uh, another sort of, my whole wear series, there are some transreal elements in that as well. Uh, I think I mentioned in a, a panel I did yesterday, one of the characters in the Ware novels was based on my father. There's this man called Cobb Anderson. And he, uh, in, in software, he, the robots, he's, he helped create the robots, invent the robots, and they, uh, he's got a bad heart, he you know, doesn't have long to live, and as sort of a favor, the robots uh, get him a deal to come up to the moon where they've established their own civilization. And then they, they basically take his body apart and eat his brain and uh, get all the software out of his body and then have this, this copy of him and put it into a robot that looks just like him and send it back to Earth. And that's, uh, in a way, my father had a, a coronary bypass operation and in a sense, it, it had a strong effect on him and in a way it was as if he was a different person. It's sort of like Philip K. Dick's story, the father thing, about the father that something happens to him and he becomes different. But uh, it wasn't really as sinister as in uh, the father thing. I mean, this guy was pretty much still the same person. The catch there at that time, I still didn't quite get how small computers were going to be. I wrote this in 1980. And at that time, a decent-sized computer was usually, you know, in the basement of some building on campus. So he has his brain is in a Mr. Frosty truck that follows him around. <laughs> and because it's super cooled inside there. <laughs> and uh, the, he doesn't have complete autonomy because there's also a robot in control of, the, control of the truck, you know, and is time prone, is at times prone to sort of clamping down on him and trying to take control. And there's another character in software, uh, this guy called Stan or Stay High, Stay High Mooney. And he was uh, based on a guy, I had a friend in Geneseo whose younger brother would come visit him. Uh, his name was Dennis. And uh, he was just a complete wild man. He was always, he'd come back from New Orleans with a suitcase full of pot that he'd bought there at the carnival. And then it would turn out it actually wasn't pot or it was, <laughs> he wasn't a, a very shrewd person. It, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it was. And so he'd be boiling it in a lobster pot and trying to collect the, the hopefully uh, intoxicating vapors that were going to come off this suitcase full of skunkweed. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and so, but he was a, a perfect character to write about. He was very inspiring. In uh, a loose sense, it's like, well, I always liked the writing of the Beats when I was growing up. And I always liked that, that Jack Kerouac would write about his own life and sort of novelize that. And that was one reason transrealism appealed to me. It's somebody taking his own life and making it into sort of a legend and using the, the people around him as characters. So my friend Dennis, he's a little bit like my Neil Cassidy. He was, you know, some very strange and unconventional person that I hung around with a certain amount. Um, the thing is, I couldn't see, well, after all, I was a mathematics professor, so my life, per se, was not really as colorful as Jack Kerouac's life or William Burroughs's life. You know, I wasn't shooting up, you know, or I wasn't hitchhiking across the country, you know. I was teaching calculus. <laughs> so, uh, to make it more exciting, then that's the other level, and that's where I, I was thinking, well, I can write something that's like a beatnik novel, but to give it this extra texture, I'm going to have science fiction in here. So I'm going to have somebody that leads his body and actually goes to infinity. And as I mentioned in that little piece I read, I had this sort of realization over the years that the reason that there's this certain things that we always talk about in science fiction is because these things tend to speak towards uh, archetypal things. I mean, time travel, we all have this aching, nostalgic desire to go back to our youth, see our, our childhood friends again, our loved ones that are gone. 
and uh, time travel is a sort of way of reifying that, making that, it's an objective correlative. It's something concrete that you can talk about. And as I mentioned, telepathy, there's always this dream that people are gonna understand what you're talking about, you know, and that doesn't always happen. And uh, you, there's always this feeling, if I only had telepathy and I could get into total contact with them, total understanding. Uh, we do, I mean, at times, if you have a good friend or a loved one, and you have a very close and rapid, intimate conversation, there is this feeling that you're communicating brain to brain. So telepathy, it's, it's something we can imagine what it would feel like. But again, making it science fiction gives it that, that extra thing. Another thing I like about science fiction is it is sort of a, well, it's a demotic art form. It's a, an art form of the people. It's, uh, it's got this sort of funky quality to it, like jazz or rock and roll. It's not really respectable. Uh, it's, uh, it's not something that's usually taught in English departments. I mean, sometimes there will be a few science fiction novels that the English professors decide are okay to talk about. But uh, I don't know if they've ever taught mine. Uh, but, you know, there's, uh, and they're always kind of behind the times. So science fiction has this, this quality, and I like that about it, this sort of almost punk rock quality, this immediacy, this grittiness. And there's also the whole genre thing. It's like the thing, I know it's only rock and roll, but I like it. So science fiction, it's nice to just have something really funky, like robots eating somebody's brain, or a giant squid tearing somebody's house apart, you know, the, the huge clacking beak forcing its way in the window. And uh, we like these things. They're dramatic, and they're fun to think about. So more of my, my trans real novels. Um, after uh, Geneseo, we went and lived in Heidelberg for two years. As I say, I had that grant there. And I wrote a, a trans real novel about that period. I was interested, at that time, it was the time of the, uh, there was a big terrorism problem in Germany and Italy. It was, uh, it, it was, local people, it wasn't Islamic terrorism, it was, uh, you probably remember it, what were they called? Bader Meinhof, in Italy there was a crowd called uh, the Red Army Faction, maybe they were called. And so, uh, I had an idea of writing a novel about that stuff. And then, um, I also, I was annoyed my books, well, writers were always annoyed our books aren't getting as much notice as we'd like them to. It's because there's a lot of books out there. And uh, I remember that some guy had gotten tr in trouble for in Rampart's magazine explaining how to make an atomic bomb. So I thought, okay, I'll do a research and give a really good description about how to make an atomic bomb in this book. You know, and then that'll create some furor, you know. But nobody even commented on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but so I set it up about, I'd also read a book, there was a, a thriller called Gadget by an English writer, uh, Nicholas something, I can't think of his last name, Gadget, and that was about a sort of terrorist nuclear bomb. So I had fun doing that. So they, they you know, they, they hijack a truck with some uh, fuel rods and they get the fuel rods out and they take it into, they hide it somewhere in Italy and they make a, they make a bomb, which is pretty easy. Actually what they do is they just melt a whole lot of the stuff and they get two big hemispheres of it and at some point, this woman who's sort of modeled on Patty Smith, there's a great scene. She's holding one of these uh, two hemispheres in each hand, and then she clap, slams them together like symbols, and the, 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 the film burns through. You know, the, the bomb goes off. And she's in, uh, she's in a museum in Rome. And uh, why is she doing this? Well, this is the cool part. There's this being from the fourth dimension whose name is Babs, and... Uh, a guy's been doing a, a particle experiment, and he managed to knot one of part of her tail into our space. So she's, it kind of annoys her. She's sort of stuck to our space. Normally she'd be moving all over the place, but she's stuck. And the part of her that's in our space, she, she makes it appear to be, well, a giant ass is what it looks like. <laughs> a woman's ass with breasts and a mouth. And uh, so, and Babs is very convincing at getting men to do things for her. And uh, so that was cool. That was, I don't know, somehow, that was just an image I wanted to write about. And uh, who knows why, you know. And uh, 
So, and that's in the main character in there is a, a math professor who gets kidnapped by these, uh, actually he's a physics professor, gets kidnapped by these, these terrorists and they get him to help make this bomb. And uh, that was a fun book. I, that was actually one of my better books, I think. But I think, I don't know, maybe it was called The Sex Sphere and people misunderstood what kind of book it was. They didn't realize it was a, a work of radical literature. They thought it was some sleazy pornographic science fiction novel. <laughs> That's the trouble when you're working in a subgenre like this. You know, you think you're doing high art and people sort of assume the worst. Well, yeah, oddly, it's actually a, it's a somewhat, fem in a way, it's a somewhat feminist book because about half the book is told from the point of view of the man's wife. And uh, even Susan Allison at Ace published it, and she's, she's checked it out with all the women that worked with her, and they, they gave it her, they're okay, they said it was okay. And uh, she said actually it was a good description of a marriage. <laughs> But, uh, and then after that, I went back and I did the, uh, as I mentioned, then I did the one, um, The Secret of Life. That's the one about the guy in high school who discovers that he's an alien. And then maybe the next trans real novel might have been The Hacker and the Ants. That was about working in the computer industry. I did a, a sort of really odd sort of trans real book called Saucer Wisdom. This was shortly before the uh, millennium. And uh, this was a, a very, very, kind of the strangest book I ever wrote. Because Wired Magazine was offering, they wanted to start a line of books. And they offered me a contract to write a book of speculations about the future. And then I came up with all these speculations. And they said, well, there should be something that ties it together. And I said, OK, well, the way it worked, uh, there's a UFO abductee, and uh, he heard these things from the, the UFO aliens. They told him. They've been to the future. So these aren't just half-assed speculations. These are, these are facts. And then I pushed it a little further. I said, by the way, I, w I can bring the UFO abductee in to meet you. <laughs> so at this time, I had my friend Greg Gibson, who uh, he was a, a vet. <laughs> but he was also a rare book dealer. He was my roommate in college. But at this time, his hair was down to his shoulders, and he had a full beard. And he looked sort of like, he looked like a homeless guy, basically. And uh, it was perfect. So I brought him into the Wired office, and I think it was Mark Frauenfelder was there, and, and Kevin Kelly, and three or four young people. And I said, okay, well, this is the guy. His name is Frank Shook, and actually, I got this material from him. And so uh, I was also to do a Whitley Straber kind of move. I thought, <laughs> this will destroy what, what little credibility I have as a scientist, but you know, maybe I'll make, you know, make some good money. And uh, so they, <laughs> I asked Greg to tell a little bit about it. And then he just starts, I, I can't talk about it. It's just too much. It's too weird. You know? And then he jumps up and runs out of the room. And then the editors are just sort of looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, that's it. And they said, okay, you've got the contract. We're going <laughs> to do the book. And then uh, I took some of them aside and I said, well, you know, actually, this is a hoax, you know. And uh, I, I'm not, again, I was torn. Do I want to go with the hoax full bore? And they're, oh, yeah, let's go with it. You know, let's just, let's present it as being true. And, uh, but then, unfortunately, they, they lost their funding for that line of books. But my agent worked out on them, and we got to keep the advance. It was the best advance I ever got for a book. And then uh, David Hartwell, a tour, picked it up. And he said, well, we're not going to present this as being true, OK? <laughs> so uh, Bruce Sterling wrote a nice intro sort of explaining that it was sort of a, a game. And then Tor made this odd decision. And I, maybe I encouraged them in this to market it as a nonfiction book, which it didn't sell that well. I think if it was really a novel is what it was, because I ended up working it. So there's this arc of things. There's these interactions between Frank Shook, the UFO nut, and the, the main narrator, who is Rudy, is Rudy Rucker. Like Frank Shook breaks into my house and steals my 
my computer because he wants the files, and then I have to go get them back from him, and there's all these different things happen. And uh, but uh, that was that was a lot of fun. The the one thing Greg was angry because when I was convincing him to go to the Wired meeting, I'd I was telling him I'd give him part of the advance, and then uh, I couldn't bring myself to do that. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Anyway, um, so that was another Transreal book, and then uh, recently I've been sort of. I think I've finally gotten to the point where I'm able to invent characters that are sort of rounded and plausible and do probably what a lot of writers do isn't so much that you have a character be just like some person you know. It's more that you have the character. You sort of fracture different people that you know and you take little aspects of it, like a Mr. Potato Head character. You take an ear from here, a nose from there, and sometimes that works. Um, my novel, Mathematicians in Love, was, in a way, it had some transreal qualities because it was about, um, it's about two mathematicians in grad school, and they're in Berkeley. And they're, uh, so I certainly know what it's like to be a mathematician in grad school. And I always say that I belong to various weird subgroups in society over the years. I mean, I was a computer scientist, I worked as a computer programmer, I hung around with the Mondo 2000 people. They were these sort of psychedelic Berkeley people. And I've hung around with science fiction writers a lot of my life. But the mathematicians, they're the strangest. <laughs> they're, they're kind of the, the least, least normal kinds of people. So it was fun to write about them in uh, Mathematicians in Love, the two mathematicians. And they're fighting it out over, uh, they're in love with the same woman. and. Uh, the way that works out is they, they find a way to basically alter reality. They find a way to go over to this higher level where there's this creature who actually turns out to be a giant jellyfish and sort of like God. And basically our universe, I've never liked the idea of every possible universe existing, but this is sort of controlled. There's a God and he writes a fresh draft of our universe every week. So it's like, it's like this novel, you know, you've got the first draft. So the, the whole universe is like this complete novel, you know, there's stuff at the beginning, there's stuff at the end, and all meshes and interlinks. And then God studies that for a week and thinks, you know, it would be a little cooler, you know, if we had this person meet that person. And it, sometimes I get this feeling that life is like that because there are so many cool coincidences and, and such insane things happen in the news, like things you think, you know, I never would have put this in because this is just so far out and then these things happen. And so so they, they find the jellyfish god who's doing the, the successive drafts and then one of them gets a draft of the universe where he gets the girl and then the other guy manages to get over there and prevails on the draft to be changed so he gets the girl. And so that was pretty cool. Another theme that was in those books, those are the, the Bush years and I think I wrote three novels in a row where there's <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't get into politics, but let's just say three novels in a row where the characters, there was, there was a U.S. president who was, uh, oh, shall we say, not, not the ideal ruler, okay? So, uh, and so that was a big theme in that book. There's this, I think he was called Joe Dokes. Yeah, Joe Dokes. And then in post-singular, there was another one called, uh, gee, I can't even remember the name. Um, but anyway, so that was, that was a theme I was playing in there, well, the political thing. Because that's sort of another aspect of transrealism, that you're, you're not trying to affect some future society. There's the hope sometimes that something you write in your novel will affect the way people think about the society that we're in right now. There's always, you know, I mean, as an artist, you sometimes hope to have an influence on society in the sense of uh, changing the direction that it's heading in. It's always hard to tell what makes society change direction, but every little bit you can do uh, might, might be of some use. And um, more recently, I wrote the two novels, Post-Singular and Hylozoic, and those, uh, those are pretty much not transreal. Those are pretty much novels that are, are sort of made up the characters. Uh, one thing I did in there, I taught at San Jose State, as I said, I taught 20 years there, and a lot of my students were Vietnamese. So I had some, 
the main character, one of the main characters in those books is a Vietnamese woman. And that was, it was pretty easy to do because as I spent a lot of time talking to my Vietnamese students, they'd come to my office and uh, I had a pretty good image of how they would, were thinking. And uh, so that's, um, maybe I've sort of lectured long enough. Let's, let's switch to some questions now. Yeah? Uh, it goes in waves. In the 90s, I was huge in Japan. I mean, they flew me over there, and they, they'd pay me to do readings in bookstores. Can you imagine? <laughs> and, uh, like, I'd do the reading, then they'd come up and give me, like, $300, you know. This, this is pretty good. And uh, then I'd go have supper, you know. <laughs> there, there went the $300, but... <laughs> you get enough food to cover the palm of your hand, you know. But... Uh, so I was very big in Japan, though now the Japanese have, I think, pretty much totally forgotten about me. And I was big in Germany in the mid-80s. They were translating everything. Then I had a Vogue in Italy in the early 2000s. They translated four or five of my books. And uh, recently there's been some action in Spain. So it's sort of, it just comes and goes. It depends. It's something, you know, I have zero control over, but just suddenly there'll be a country where they get interested in my work. Yeah? That's it? I've got a German name? <laughs> the Russians have, to have translated a fair number of my books, too. So, uh, and white light is available in Icelandic. <laughs> yeah? Well, you, you, were, you were talking, with, without mentioning George Kander by name yesterday, and, and again obliquely today, you're talking about the, the, the fact that there's more than one infinity. And once, once one studied that in, in, in graduate school, in a certain sense, it's a high that you never come down from. I mean, it's just a bit. It is, yeah, very exciting to learn about different levels of infinity. It seems as if Cantor suffered from manic depression. That's the impression that I have. Uh, I sometimes, actually, yesterday I went to a panel uh, with Tim Powers and Harry Turtledove, and they were talking about historical novels. And I did get this kind of, it crossed my mind, it might be fun to write a historical novel about, about George Cantor and explain why he wasn't actually crazy. There was some real stuff he was seeing. I have done a couple of historical novels. I did a nonfiction historical novel about Peter Bruegel. And uh, there was really nothing transreal about that, except at a sort of meta level there was that I identify with Bruegel as an artist, what kind of drove him. He had this humanity and wanting to write, you know, paint sort of vulgar, ordinary things, but have it be expressing these sort of cosmic, cosmic sense. And uh, The Hollow Earth, was a novel about a young man who leaves his farm and travels with Edgar Allan Poe in a boat to the Antarctica, and then they use a balloon to go to the middle of Antarctica, and then they fall through the ice. They manage to get inside the earth, which is hollow. And uh, that's, I've just always been fascinated by the idea of the hollow earth. And that, there, there was a slight transreal element in that I myself grew up, you know, in the country and left home, so there's some of that in there, a little bit. Yeah, Nordrum? Um, on the back of uh, the uh, Mathematician Who Loves, uh, which book from the Denver Post, they're referring to the one-man movement, for example, and I'm curious as to whether you got any feedback from the Greek Manifesto, and are there any professed transreal writers? That, uh, well, I, the, the place I got the name was actually, it was from a British edition of Philip K. Dick's book, A Scanner Darkly. And somebody, possibly uh, Norman Spinrad, I'm not sure, had said, uh, Phil Dick has written a transcendental autobiography. And it was a way of looking at, at what he was doing. And he certainly had this transreal quality of the characters in his books are very often the same sorts of people, and you get the sense they're very much like himself and the, whatever wife he had at that time. And uh, also, particularly Scanner Darkly, you know, 
we all know there's this period he was living in Oakland or Berkeley and hanging around with lots of speed freaks. And so it's, there's a sort of close match between that and the book. So he was one person that influenced me. And again, it had that sort of beat quality. Somehow, uh, when you get writers talking about real, what really happens in their lives, it often tends to get that, that sort of beatnik feeling. And uh, there's the Australian uh, writer and critic, Damien Broderick, actually wrote a university press book about transrealism. And in there, uh, he surveyed other writers who he thought were, were using that technique. And I know it, he mentioned me and Philip K. Dick in there, and now, off the top of my head, I can't think of the other writers that he talks about in there, but... Greg Egan? Greg Egan? Uh-huh. Well, Kurt Vonnegut, he, he was a very... really one of my favorite science fiction writers, too. Uh, Sirens of Titan was one I particularly liked. I thought that was pretty much a flawless novel. And uh, later, of course, he... He still had SF elements, but he didn't want to be a science fiction writer. Remember, there's his famous line, uh, for most of my career I've been a dissatisfied occupant of that bin called science fiction, or that file drawer called science fiction, dissatisfied because critics regularly mistake it for a urinal. <laughs> and, and, uh, but he's, you know, now and then there's a science fiction writer who makes it out of the ghetto, and you know, they s might still be writing stuff like science fiction, but they, they no longer have that stigma attached to them. And of course, William Gibson made it out, and Vonnegut made it out. But it's, uh, it's tricky once you get typecast as a science fiction writer. The other way, it's okay. There can be a mainstream literary writer, oh, like Margaret Atwood, and you can write a science fiction novel, but then They'll never use that word in the reviews in the New York Times. They'll say speculative fiction or use it, you know, about the future. And somehow, it's never that, that nasty, nasty stuff. <laughs> yeah? Well, I've always, even since high school, I think I read Alan Watts books, you know, and then later I, I read a lot of books by D.T. Suzuki, and I've always been very interested in, in Zen and Buddhism, and probably the Beats might have been the ones that set me down that trail. And the whole idea of mysticism always interested me. I read up, you know, s some books about that. There's an interesting book by Rudolf Otto called Mysticism East and West. So that's uh, sort of close to my worldview is this sense that all is one, you know, that's the sort of mystic teaching that it's sort of everything's part of this one big thing. And it's not just a theoretical thing, it's a thing you can feel a direct contact with. And uh, so that's something sort of that underlies a lot of what I write about. I come back to that, yeah. Yes? Yeah. I assume you must have written mathematical papers written in collaboration with those Yes. I think it's three. Yeah. Well, I wrote a paper with Eric Ellentuck, and he wrote a paper with Richard Bumby, and Richard Bumby wrote a paper with Paul Erdős. So, depending how you count, that's two or three. Yeah. I saw Erdős once. He was a quite a character. I had dinner with him, and uh, for some reason we got onto the afterlife, and he had this list of questions he was going to ask God when he died. And I wish I'd written them down. They're all just so demented and off kilter. It's a thought, yeah. Probably, I mean, Kurt Gödel would be interesting, but it's sort of, I don't know. I just kind of respect Gödel too much to, to write about him. And George Cantor might work. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe I've written about. I've written about Peter Bruegel. My last novel, Hylozoic, I always wanted to write about Hieronymus Bosch. So the whole novel isn't about him, but they end up in this parallel world where they land happen in Bosch's time, and they become, for various reasons I won't go into, my characters in this world, they're only about three feet tall, unlike the, the, compared to the regular people. But they're fast, and they're strong. 
and he becomes, Bosch likes having him around because he likes having this odd-looking little man around. And it was fun writing about Bosch. Bruegel, it's more, he's more of a, seems like a more of a lovable person, kind of more human. And Bosch, there's this sort of coldness when you look at his pictures. I mean, there's people doing really nasty things in there. And, uh, but so I had this, this image of a guy who's just really kind of a prick, but also kind of sardonic and laughing at everything. And uh, something that Tim mentioned yesterday, before 1500, people just had this really odd way of looking at the world. I mean, they were so dominated by religion. I mean, they really thought God was totally watching what they were doing, and they were definitely going to go to heaven or hell. And, you know, that really dominated the way they thought. And it was fun to have be writing about a guy like that. But uh, so it's, it's sort of like, who would I want to spend a lot of time with? Um, so it's it's a I might I might take that route, but I'm not sure exactly where I would take it. Uh, a historical figure. Well, that's it's it's hard to be sure. Uh, George Cantor is pretty cool. I don't know. It'd be fun to hang around with Mick Jagger. I had an idea for a story the other day. I started using Twitter recently, and uh, Bruce Sterling was visiting me, and we were working on a story together. And he was continually checking his computer to look at the tweets. And I, you know, I wasn't that interested in it. But then he tells me William Gibson is tweeting, and uh, he's tweeting as great dismal. And we're always interested in whatever builds up to, you know. And so Bill is, I don't, he's put up. Is it? 60,000 tweets or 6,000, maybe it's 6,000, a lot of tweets. It's his tweet, and so then I said, all right, I'm gonna get in on this, you know. <laughs> so I've been tweeting a little bit. And then I was curious, like Mick Jagger, uh, sometimes you'll find people that just say they're Mick Jagger and start tweeting, you know, or they, there are already two people on, on Twitter saying they were Rudy Rucker, and, <laughs> and I, compl I complained to Twitter, and actually, these people, they had just taken out Twitter accounts in my name, but they'd never started doing any, any heavy-duty tweeting. So, um, so I had to call myself Rudy the Elder, which <laughs> that's a name I like using because Peter Bruegel the Elder. And I have a son called Rudy, so I'm Rudy the Elder. And, uh, but then I, I said, well, Mick Jagger does have an official Twitter account, but he doesn't want to be bothered with tweeting. Can you imagine you're as cool as Mick Jagger, you know? You've got better things to do than sit around typing, you know, typing web links into your cell phone. You know, that's that's not what Mick's going to be doing. So he hired a tweeter. <laughs> so it's this guy who tweets for him. And apparently a lot of the stars do that. And I've just been sort of brooding about that. I, th I think I see a story in that, you know. You get a tweeter and they sort of take over more and more aspects of your life. You know, the, they'll answer your phone for you. They'll talk to your friends for you. You know, they'll sleep with your wife, you know. <laughs> you get a disease, they go to the hospital. <laughs> so, huh? Yeah, the, the sinister tweeter. But I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> Especially since I don't remember the question. Uh, yeah? Ah, uh, the singularity. Uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's an idea. It's an idea that was interesting about 20 years ago, and now it's become a sort of mass media idea. And it's being. It's basically people are afraid of dying, and we want we're grasping for some hope. And if you go to Ray Kurzweil's website and you buy vitamins from him, he actually sells vitamins on his website. I mean, that tells you something, you know. And then uh, you can hang on long enough until the nanomachines, you can shoot up the nanomachines, and they'll clean all the gunk out of your veins that you got from eating fan food at cons. <laughs> and that'll buy you another two or three years. And then they're going to have the, the slice and dice robots that are going to, 
put your brain at, take your software out and put you into a computer, you know, and then you're going to be immortal. And uh, wouldn't you love to live inside a computer? <laughs> I mean, Windows or Mac, neither one would be a very pleasant place. So, uh, but the ideas behind the singularity, things are going to change, and it's just sort of a way, I guess, it'd be nice if things changed all at once, that's always the dream, and there's a lot of science fiction novels where something incredible happens from one day to the next, and I like books like that, where something really cool happens. But uh, it's, the future, it's, who knows what it's going to be like. I was just talking to, uh, Actually, I was talking to um, Ernesto Hogan this morning. And we were talking about the idea. He mentioned that one of his uncles in East L.A. made a television out of an Army surplus radar unit back when he was a boy. It was one of the first TVs in their family. And, like, that's, I mean, that's the way TV, TV was when, you know, the, the older generation was little. It was just this completely unknown thing, you know. And this is only 60 years ago. So... When we try to think what it's going to be like in 1960, I mean, none of the Futurians were really thinking about cell phones or they weren't thinking about tweeting. You know, all of this stuff that happens is so unpredictable. So the best thing to do is really let your imagination run wild. And what I use to guide my imagination is to try to hit on things that somehow have some resonance to something, some transreal resonance to things that matter to me. Actually, tomorrow I'm going to give uh, another panel, or it'll be more of a talk. I guess today was pretty much a talk, too, but it's called, uh, I think, New Futures for Science Fiction, or some title like that. So I'll be, I'll be talking on that tomorrow at 11.30. Actually, uh, I didn't realize when I came to this con that I thought I was going to be on panels with other people. <laughs> I didn't realize how much uh, they were going to squeeze out of me here. Though it's... Oh, I mean, I enjoy talking, so it's, I was a teacher all these years, it's, it's no great effort for me to hold forth. But uh, anyway, that's what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow, and I actually put that talk on my blog, so even if you don't come tomorrow, you can read the talk. It's rudyrucker.com slash blog. Okay, so I think we've about used up our time, so thanks for turning out.